Well, let me invite you to find your seats as we continue our worship this morning. We'll do so with our scripture reading. And this morning, our scripture reading comes from the book of Ephesians in chapter 5, verses 22 through 33. And so hear now the word of the Lord. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, because the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is head of the church. He is the savior of the body. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives are to submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her, to make her holy, cleansing her with the washing of water by the word. He did this to present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or anything like that, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands are to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hates his own flesh, but provides and cares for it, just as Christ does for the church, since we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This mystery is profound, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. To sum up, each one of you is to love his wife as himself, and the wife is to respect her husband. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, we are in the book of Ephesians. We've been going through a series on how we can cultivate a flourishing faith, looking at Paul's letter to the Ephesians. And as you've just heard, we come now to this quintessential passage, maybe one of the most monumental passages on marriage in all of the Bible, and it's in Ephesians chapter 5. But I know that as monumental as this passage is, there are also some monumental pitfalls that lay ahead. There's nothing like starting the scripture reading with, The phrase, wives submit to your husbands, that plays well in the 21st century. And yet, I also know that a passage like this has been used to, just quite honest, the abuse of many throughout the history of the church. The church, which is supposed to be a beacon of justice, standing for the oppressed and the powerless has taken passages like this and twisted them and used them against women in particular. And so as we come to a passage like this with these monumental pitfalls, my hope is that somehow we can also see the picture of beauty and glory that's laid before us. Because as Paul writes, he says, this mystery is profound. And there's no way that he can talk about marriage or husbands or wives without also talking about Christ and the gospel and God and how all of this creates a life that flourishes. And so, as we enter into this time, I have to confess to you that, well, I struggled with the idea of how to paint a picture this morning that captures the beauty and glory of this passage. How do you get at something that's a profound mystery, as Paul writes? 
So we're going to talk about husbands this morning. Next week, we'll get into more particulars on, on wives and how these different things play out. And so we're going to look at sort of a summary. And maybe if you even look at the, this sermon title for this morning, it's something to the effect of what, what does God expect of husbands? And so I was looking at this passage like, okay, well, and, and I've been told this by pastors and I've talked about this in premarital counseling with other couples. You know, this is kind of the, the husband's job description is laid out here. And so I'm looking at the job description and, well, how does the job description tie into the, to the mission of what marriage is designed to do? And then what's the vision of what marriage has? And what are its values? And I've got job descriptions and missions, visions, values. And it, it dawned on me to pull my wife aside in the kitchen and say, so here's kind of how my sermon's shaping up. And it's not exactly the most poetic picture of marriage. And she's like, okay. And so I was like, you know, I'm thinking, you know, we'll talk about like the husband's job description and how that ties into the mission and vision and values of marriage. And she gave me this look like, what is this, a business proposal? And uh, she was gentle with me, right? And she was like, no, nope, that's not exactly romantic and poetic as most people would consider when coming into marriage or as even the Apostle Paul would lay it out. And so at that point, I realized it probably would not be good to end this sermon with, you know, let's all create smart goals for our marriage, you know, specific, measurable, attainable, relevant, time-oriented, or whatever they have, right? Or that, that husbands were going to run a SWOT analysis at the Q&A time after the service of your strengths, weakness, opportunities, and threats of your marriage, because as I was talking with my wife, I realized treating your marriage as a business is a threat to your marriage, um, and so I realized, no, talking about marriage as mergers and acquisitions was probably not the best sermon title. So what, what is Paul laying out for us here? How can we get to this monumental picture, this, this glory of this profound mystery? How can we get at that in the little time that we had this morning when we could spend weeks upon weeks upon weeks looking at a passage like this? And so... With some help from my wife, I came up with better points, right, that gets at the heart of marriage, the desire of marriage, and then the dance of marriage. And so that's where those will be our headings for us this morning, to try and get to this, okay, what, what do we mean by submitting and headship in different roles? How do, how do marriage partners dance with each other? But before we can even get to the dance, we have to look at, well, what is the heart of marriage? What's its essence? And then what's marriage designed to bring about in our lives? What's the desire for marriage to bring about? And then that will bring us to the fun part that everyone's going to be waiting for is that, what, so what's this dance? What does this look like? All right, so let's take that first question then. What is the heart of marriage? What is the essence of marriage? That might be hard to describe because even Paul himself says, it's a profound mystery. So what is this mystery? What are we called to do? Now we have a few options, right? Men, if we're talking about men's job descriptions, you might kind of have the classic paradigm in mind that sociologists have used, right? And that is men are, are predominantly, as we look across cultures and time, right? They all basically fulfill the functions of protect, provide, and procreate, right? Simple. They all start with P, 
right? We can all do them, right? And we're men. It makes sense. But I will say this. While that definitely does fit with what you'd read in Genesis chapters 1 and 2, right? We're confusing the job description for the mission. What is the heart of marriage? What is the essence of it that would call men up into it, right? And then you might think, okay, well, how about companionship? Is the essence of marriage companionship? Is that the heart of marriage? After all, it says in this text here, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. After all, if you, again, you were to look at Genesis chapter 1 and 2, which is what the Apostle Paul takes us to in order for us to understand what marriage is, the heart of marriage, you would see that the only problem that we had in paradise was that it was not good for man to be alone. We were basically built like iPhones with defects already, already programmed in, right? The battery was going to die very quickly unless Adam had a companion suitable for him. It was not good for man to be alone. But is that the heart of it, companionship? Because after all, isn't, well, aren't some of the loneliest people you know the people who are in unhealthy marriages? So what is the heart of marriage? Is it just children, procreation? After all, God said, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. But then again, what if you're in a marriage where you're struggling to have children? You can't have children. That's not an option. Are you failing at your marriage? And I would say no. After all, Jesus was a single man who did not procreate. And so it's absolutely possible to fulfill everything that's at the heart of marriage, even though you may not even be in one. And so what is the heart of marriage? Well, this brings us into our text because Paul gets at it when he says in verse 28, in the same way, husbands are to love their wives as their own bodies. Now, this, if you're reading it closely, is a little weird. It's a little weird because it almost seems like the subject kind of starts to change. Or it's a, it's a bit of a, I don't know, almost a weak transition, if you're just kind of glossing over it, that Paul goes from verse, 20, or excuse me, verse 25, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her to make her holy, cleansing her with the washing of water by the word. He did this to present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or anything like that, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands are to love their wives as their own bodies. You're like, what? How did we go from the way Jesus loves the church is the way that husbands should love their wives like their own bodies? And then how does he then go on to, after all, and this is where the quote comes, we're members of his body. And then he quotes Genesis 2.24. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother. You're like, wait, for what reason? Like, so I'm not quite following the logic here, Paul. Well, here's where I think Paul is hacking us. I think when he talks about in the same way, husbands are to love their wives as their own bodies. He's beginning to tie in how one, in the garden, when God creates male and female, 
he creates the female out of the male. You know, the idea was that God takes this pile of dust and makes Adam. And he could have just taken another pile of dust and made Eve. But no, instead, he takes Eve out of Adam, creating her out of him. And so Paul is now tying in this truth of the gospel that here you have, well, Eve basically is Adam's flesh. And he sings as much in this great poem in verse 23 of Genesis chapter 2. And he said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. And so he's tying that with what did Jesus say was the greatest commandment? Love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. He's saying this is even more true of husbands for loving their wives. Because husbands, your closest neighbor is your wife. Husbands. And on top of that, she's so close to you that Eve was made out of Adam's own flesh. And so to love her as yourself. But then he goes on. He says, we're members of his body. And this is where the reader has to have in their mind Genesis chapter 2.23, which kind of fills in the gap between verses 30 and 31. He says, just as Christ does for the church since we are members of his body. And if you, if you have a Bible in front of you, you may even see a footnote that says some manuscripts include bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh. Because it's filling in that gap of Paul taking verse 23 and 24 all together. And so there are two truths that Paul kind of puts before us. Is that one, woman is made out of the same substance of man, which speaks to her equality with man. Eve was not subordinate or subject in some inferior way to Adam. They're equal. And you see, this begins to paint the picture of why marriage is what its heart is is that we're called to reflect God himself. That being made in the image of God is not something that we can do on our own and fulfill in its entirety. Being made in the image of God takes male and female to fully represent him. And this begins to portray exactly what we're seeing in God himself, as we saw in earlier chapters of the book of Ephesians. That if you were to take God the Father and God the Son, they are equal in substance, and yet they are distinct, equal in power and glory, and yet different, right? We wouldn't say that God the Father died on the cross, or that God the Son dwells within your hearts, and yet we would say that God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are all one. And that mystery that profound mystery of the Trinity itself is also the profound mystery that our marriages are invited into to help us better grasp and understand exactly who God is, that we are portraying him. That though same in substance with man, woman is different from man. They're not identical, just like the father and son are not identical. And so I love the way Andy Wilson puts this. He is a theologian and pastor in, in London. And he says, so when the world asks, what do you mean when you say that God is neither distant from us, like Islam says, nor collapsible into us, like paganism says, the relationship between men and women is our go-to illustration and the primary context in which it is displayed in the family. The most obvious form of this is marriage. 
As Paul says, he says, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying it refers to Christ and the church. So you see, in marriage, husbands and wives, we play the role of displaying Christ and his church and understanding, even in our own hearts, what it means that Christ has a relationship with his church. What does it mean that there's love, fidelity, difference, union, sacrificial leadership, mutual service? What does that look like in practice, right, that's put on display for us in marriage? So the heart of marriage, at its very heart, is this context where we create a covenant. It says, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and hold fast or be joined to his wife, or as the old KJV would put it, leave and cleave to his wife, that we have this covenant context so that we can actually display the glory and mystery of God himself in our own marriage. So think about that. What might feel mundane or it might feel extremely difficult or what might be the source of strength and pleasure and joy in your life, all of that gets to be tied into an eternal glory of displaying God. And you see, God does this with all of our institutions in our life, does he not? Right? Every time we bring a child up for baptism, we're reminded of how the difficulties of parenting and how the everyday grind is actually tied to a much higher and glorious calling. And the same is true of marriage. That it's tied to this high and glorious calling, that this is the heart of marriage. And you see, that's because the entire Bible is basically the story of a marriage and a broken marriage. Because the whole Bible starts with God creating a people for himself and then also creating male and female to be united with themselves. And then as, that, as the world becomes broken, the first things to break are the relationships in a marriage and the relationships between us and God, him and his church. And then God spends time and time again pursuing and coming after his church, pursuing and coming after, as even the book of Revelation would say, what will ultimately be his bride, that he is going to mend this broken marriage, and that all of our marriages in their own way play a part in this great story of redemption. This marriage supper of the Lamb that we witness at the end of history is played out in our common everyday marriages. And this is why if you are single, you need not idolize marriage, nor you need not be terrified or be cynical about it. Because even though it does hold forth this great promise, there's not something that you might be missing out on because, of course, if anyone has faith in Christ, they are, in essence, an impure and sanctified marriage. And not only that, this also holds forth for us that those who might be divorced, this is not the unforgivable sin. This is not something that God just can have no part in. This is not something God would shame or shun you for. Because after all, God comes after the very people whom he had every right to divorce and who walked away from him. And, of course, this holds out for us. 
those of us who might be in difficult marriages, that there is still hope and possibility. So as we discuss that, then if that's the heart of marriage, a covenant that displays the glory and mystery of God himself and God's relationship with the church and giving us that picture. Well, what's, what's the desire of marriage? What is marriage designed to bring about? What is it supposed to create in our lives? What do we hope to get out of marriage? And let me ask you, if you got married, why'd you get married? What were you hoping to get out of it? Has it been all you've hoped for? Right? I think to answer this question, we can go back to an earlier point where I said that marriage is a covenant. Why does marriage have to be a covenant? Right? You've probably heard the common saying, like, we don't need a piece of paper to make our love real. Right? Why does marriage have to include this deep, personal, legal, binding promise? And not a promise that you're going to, you know, that when you show up in your wedding day and you make those marriage vows, it's not a declaration of how you feel about them right now, but it's a declaration that no matter how you feel about them, you'll still be there in the future, right? Why does marriage actually have to be a covenant? What is unique about a covenant that could only be brought about in those, that situation? Well, look at what marriage is designed with Christ and his church, and we can use that to extrapolate how it's supposed to be designed for our own lives. Christ enters into a marriage with his church so that he can present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but holy and blameless. And so what that means is that as each one of us enters into a marriage with both God, as putting our faith in him, and our marriage with your spouse, that ultimately what it's designed to bring about is it's designed to bring about your future self, holy, blameless, without spot or wrinkle. The person that you will be when you see God face to face will now be the person that you're becoming because of your relationship with your spouse. And that that splendor that will be on full display in the glory of heaven breaks through in the here and now because the other person loves you in such a way that it calls that forth that you love your spouse in such a way that it calls that forth from them. And you see, this is why it needs to be a covenant. And here I think no one puts this better than Tim and Kathy Keller in their great book on the meaning of marriage. And the Kellers, they make this play on why is it that a covenant is more important for marriage than the chemicals that are first experienced when you get all excited and hot and bothered with the other, other person. What is it that, that comes about that? How is a covenant deeper? Right? Because when you first get into a relationship, it's, it's always because of the passion, the spontaneity, right? the excitement, the novelty. And look, a really good marriage in many ways, yes, can have moments of that, but ultimately a good marriage is removing all the spontaneity, removing the novelty, you know, where you can finish each other's sentences, right? Where you're able to know the other person so well and you've gone through so many conflicts and even if it's the same one, just every 30 days, right? 
So how is it that a covenant is better than those chemicals? The Kellers put it this way. Imagine the first time you held your spouse's hand. Or imagine the first time you kissed your spouse, right? If you were reach over and hold their hand now, does it feel the same? Husbands, yes, yes, you could shake your head, but in our hearts, we all know, no, no, of course it doesn't, right? It's like, now I notice how clammy their hands are, right? Or now I notice, like, how rough his calluses can be. Like, all of this, right, is, of course, different. Absolutely. I mean, it has to be. But think about it. What was the source of the thrill when you first kissed or you first held hands? Well, the thrill that comes from that really is, I can't believe this person likes me, right? I mean, at, at our hearts, we're all middle schoolers just passing notes to each other. Check yes or no, do you like me? Right? Because deep down in our hearts, that's what we want, and that's the thrill of it is you're like, they're checking yes. I can't believe it. And so as you experience that, though, that entire experience is wrapped up in yourself. It's wrapped up in your own ego. It's what you're experiencing, the thrill of someone else likes me. But you see, what a marriage calls forth is sacrifice. And that's why there's a needed covenant. Because to love someone, to be so committed to someone else's joy and happiness and flourishing and well-being, it's a completely different type of electrical thrill. And it is out there, but it's on the other side of, as the Kellers would say, bending time and space and your will to bring it about. And that what it becomes is it turns to be about the other person and not about yourself. And see, this is where marriage, even if you're in an unhealthy one or a difficult one, can still accomplish this purpose is that it can bring forth the splendor in your own heart as you seek to love someone who, quite frankly, is very difficult to love. Because after all, Jesus did not enter into a marriage with you because of how great you made him feel or how much he loves being worshipped by us as his church. While all the things might be true, we can bring him joy. He does take pleasure in our worship of him. Jesus enters into the relationship with his church to redeem her, to make her splendid. He doesn't love her because she's lovely. He loves her to make her lovely. And all of us can take part in that. Whether in a marriage where both of you are trying to lay down your lives for the other or whether you feel like you're the only one laying down your life, you can still tap into this profound mystery and this splendor and become the, see the glory of what will be there in heaven breaking forth in your life now. And you see, this is the desire of marriage, is that in that moment of glory, you stand there, you see your spouse, and you just are blown away by the beauty and glory and just astonished by what God has made them to be. It's not wholly something unexpected because you can look at them in the eye and you could say, I always knew this was there in you. And I got to see glimpses of this come about. And I got to be part of making this a reality. That is the goal of marriage. And when your pleasure is found in giving pleasure to the other person, in all forms of it, that's when you have reached the heights. 
As Jesus says, he, be, he who began a work in you will not fail to bring it to completion. Now you see, that kind of change can only happen in the environment of a covenant where there is security and there is the promise that you will not leave or forsake one another. And where you play the role of Jesus in one another's lives by being faithful and committed. That can only come about in that area of security. And I want to emphasize that as we enter into this third point then. And that is the dance of marriage. This idea of, so how do we take on these different roles? If the heart of marriage is to display the mystery of who God is and how God interacts with us, and if the desire of marriage, its intended design is to bring about the splendor and glory that we will have in our future selves now, here and today, well, how do we do that? What are the dance moves and the different roles that each of us have been assigned by God and get to take on in order to make this a reality? How does this play out? You know, or another way to ask it. So uh, when are you going to go to that headship thing there, Pastor? Right? Well, I think this plays out where we're told, and I'll go back to what Andy Rilson writes. He says, The husband should love his wife as a head loves its body, and Christ loves the church by giving himself up for her, sanctifying her with the water of the water of the word and presenting her in splendor. Now it's significant, Wilson writes, that Paul pictures the husband as engaged in traditionally feminine tasks like washing, cleaning, ironing. Paul is knowingly and deliberately subverting the Greco-Roman picture of what male headship looks like. And the wife, correspondingly, should submit and respect her husband as the church submits to Christ. So what, are, what do we mean by these roles here? Well, to get this, you have to kind of zoom out of this passage. You have to zoom out and you have to understand that there are, ultimately, what Paul has been talking about is he's not a wholly new subject where he's gotten into marriage. But instead, he's coming out of this line from Ephesians 5.18, the passage that we looked at last week. Now, let me read that for you. Paul says, Don't get drunk with wine, which leads to reckless living, but be filled by the Spirit. Now, if you had your translation in front of you, you could see that that filled by the Spirit, followed by a colon, that he's about to give us a list of what it means to be filled by the Spirit. What does it look like to live a Spirit-filled life? And he has four sections. He says, one, speak the truth to one another. Two, sing in your hearts. Three, give thanks to God. And four, submit to one another. And so, verse 21 ends with submitting to one another in the fear of Christ. Then he goes right into, wives, submit to your husbands, as to the Lord. And so, the question is, is submission one way here? Right? Or husbands and wives called to submit to each other? So, as Paul just described the spirit-filled life, how does this play out? You know, is, does the mutuality of that submission in verse 21 apply to the next few categories that we're going to see, where Paul's going to talk about husbands and wives, as we're looking at. He's going to talk about parents and children. And he's going to talk about right, masters and servants. 
So is it just a one-way correlation of submission? Or does each have to submit to the other? Now, here's where I think Wilson's very helpful in this topic. And he says that it's not an either-or. Because look, if we were to jump ahead to parenting, is parenting a one-way submission? Absolutely not. Like, I mean, on most sane days, right, when all the shoes have been found, there is a clear hierarchy in the home, one would hope, right? It's there every now and so often. But at the same time, like, who's submitting to who on an everyday basis? After everything, you're laying down for your children, and you're like, and then as they get older, they have more events on your calendar than you have events on your calendar. You're like, how come my kids seem to be living a more exciting and flourishing life than I do? And you just feel like you go to work and then you go work for them. So how, who's submitting to who here? Right? And isn't it true that if you're actually going to be a good manager, in many ways you have to submit and serve those who are in your service. And so the truth is also for husbands and wives, that we are called to submit to each other. So Wilson writes that we don't do this in identical ways. Christ and the church serve one another, but not in the same fashion. For Christ serves us by dying and rising to rescue us, and we serve him by responding in faith to his leadership. Both of us offer ourselves as a sacrifice for the other, but in very different ways. And if we were to conflate the two, then the entire gospel would unravel. Right? I mean, after all, did Jesus not submit himself to death on a cross? for his, his bride. And so husbands are, in many ways, called to submit. And yet, at the same time, there is a difference, because, of course, then the same way that the church submits to Jesus in a different way, by responding in faith, right, we each have these different roles. And so the scholar N.T. Wright puts it this way, that Paul assumes, as most cultures do, that there are significant differences between men and women, Differences that go beyond mere biological and reproduction function. And their relations and roles must therefore be mutually complementary rather than identical. Within marriage, the guideline is clear. The husband is to take the lead, though he is to do so fully mindful of the self-sacrificial model which the Messiah has provided. As soon as taking the lead becomes bullying or arrogant, the whole thing collapses. So there's no way around saying what might be difficult to say, and that is that, yes, being the head means you are to take the lead. But notice that it doesn't, at any point in the entire Bible, at any point in this entire paragraph, begin to explain what taking the lead looks like other than Jesus himself dying for the church. So you see, it's about the results that this headship is supposed to bring about. It's about the model of Jesus. It's not about what you might have in your mind of these traditional family values. Because after all, even the traditional family values you probably have in mind were not the traditional family values of a pre-modern, pre-industrial society, right? Where the amount of information that we would take in, the amount of distance that we would travel would take people in this day and age multiple lifetimes to achieve. So how do we understand headship? Well, I think we understand it by seeing the ways in which we fail to understand it. 
And I think we fail to understand it because we lose sight of the fact of what marriage is designed to bring about, that it is a covenant. And the whole purpose of a covenant is to create security. And a security and a freedom that leads to flourishing. You see, so often we see models of headship that are either abusive or just totally advocating any kind of form of taking responsibility. And both of those, I believe, at their root, abuse and abdication, come down from a lack of security, that essentially it is insecure men who are abusive, and it is insecure men who are passive and abdicate any responsibility in their homes or in the world today. That it's the micromanager who's the most insecure manager, right? Or it's the manager who's never around and just kind of aloof. That's also the most insecure manager. It's those managers who bring about flourishing that have with them a sense of security where they don't need anything from you per se as an employee, but they're here to support you and help you thrive in your role. That they paint a vision of where it's supposed to go and then they, as they would say, decentralize command. Right? This is why... I'll just be totally honest with you, a modern hero of mine, someone who I think is just a fantastic role model, is not even a Christian, is a man by the name of Jocko Willink, right? Jocko is exactly what you would think a guy named Jocko is. He's a former Navy SEAL, right? He runs a, a business consulting company now. He, he, he does jujitsu and has a supplement line and a podcast and, and writes leadership books. And I know what you're thinking, like, oh, no, is this about to become a, a Andrew Rogan, uh, excuse me, Andrew Rogan, an Andrew Tate, Joe Rogan love fest? No, 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 by no means. Because I, I, what I love about how he sets this up is that he says, you know, he has these ideas of what it means to be a leader is that you paint a clear picture and you empower your team to bring it about. And what it means to be a leader is to take responsibility, not to take control. And I think that's what we see so often from insecure men and in our own marriages is that we think being a leader means I'm going to take control rather than just taking responsibility. And so the way this plays out is not in a way where you sacrifice yourself, but where you make the other sacrifice for you. Right? So the classic example that we use, we use all the time. Everyone uses it now, right? Is like, so when it comes to buying the car and you're debating on what color, you know, she wants red, you want black, right? Or you want, you know, the, the beige that everyone drives. So, right? And you're debating which color. What does headship say? Headship says the car will be what color, gentlemen? I said red, red. Red was what the wife wanted to pick. You pick red. Why? Now, you may say, well, I'm the head. I get to say the car is red. Or excuse me, I get to say the car is, is beige. I'm the head. Headship means I get to make the final say. Car is beige. And you could say, look, Ephesians 5.22, wives submit to your husbands. But honestly, she can come right back and say, yeah, in Ephesians 5.25, husbands love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Well, I think picking the color of the car is a little bit less than that. So I get this one. And she wouldn't be wrong. Right? Men, that you get to use your position of taking responsibility to bring about the flourishing of your wife, the serving and loving of your wife, and doing what's best for your wife. This is the dance of marriage, and this is the role that men get to play, is providing that context of security. 
Now, you see, I think, again, we gauge this not by how this is supposed to be played out, right? Because I think we get into all sorts of problems when we begin to say, and that's why men need to be the ones who drive the car, right? And that's why men need to be the ones who do this, and men need to be the ones who do that. It's all, that's totally missing the picture and confusing the job description for the actual mission. The actual mission is to reflect Jesus and create an environment of security that can lead to your wife's flourishing. So men, over the course of your marriage, has your wife felt degraded, useless, worthless, incapable because of her time with you? I love the way Brian Chappell puts this, and he wrote a book on marriage called Each for the Other. And he talks about, is your wife a perfectly capable driver until you get in the car with her? And under that, she just wilts and melts and second guesses and everything. And, and I say that to you because I am guilty of that one, right? Our first fight as, as a married couple, like, I mean, like our first, like, real fight was over how to load the dishwasher, because I think there's a right way to load it. And my wife thinks it doesn't matter as long as they get cleaned, right? So what kind of context of security are you creating and making? And this is why none of us can do this without being spirit-filled. Because we cannot create a context of security for our wives unless we have that security ourselves. We cannot offer something we do not have. And if you are looking to your wife and her performance as a means for your security, then you are going to crush her and you will destroy your marriage. Because you can only find this when you look to Jesus, the only one who offers us the security and the freedom that we actually have in his service, modeling him. So we will definitely talk more as we do this, but I would end pointing all of us to see the model that he provides. So let us pray. Father, we come before you now asking that you would help us to see Jesus high and lifted up, giving himself so that we could be holy, seeing how you have sacrificed yourself to cleanse us with the washing of water by the word. May you present us to yourself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or anything like that, but holy and blameless. Lord, for you ask for the power to make that a reality in our lives and in our marriages. To help us, especially as the husbands in this room, to be like Jesus and to fulfill and live out of the profound mystery of creating a covenant context for security that leads to the flourishing of our spouses, and that in so doing, we also become the person you're calling us to be, and that the future glory and splendor would break into our lives now by the power of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.